Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, I'm joined by Jamie Dunbar, stepping in for Cosmo Macero in 321 Go. Then, Hugh Drummond speaks with Dr. Gregory Siatone, Medical Director of Anna Maria College's Health Emergency Management Program, about coronavirus. And in two minutes with Tom, we're talking Super Tuesday. First up, 321 Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello, and welcome to 321 Go on OA on Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host this week, Jamie Dunbar. Cosmo Macero is on assignment. In this installment of 321 Go, first, Governor Baker files an economic development bill this week with a focus on housing starts and what this means for the Commonwealth now and into the future. And our very own Ann Murphy visits the OA On Air studio for an interview with Kyan to spotlight the women of OA for the month of March, which is International Women's Month. Finally, Jack Welsh, the passing of a business icon, from Neutron Jack to Forbes Manager of the Century. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson, as always. Hello. Hello, Jamie. Kyan, thank you. Kyan is the official voice of OA On Air. I'm just here to fill the spaces in between. <laughs> <laughs> and a mighty fine good job you're doing. Well, thank you very much. So, Cayenne, this week the governor filed his economic development bill, about $241 million, uh, primarily focusing on new housing starts and housing incentives for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, as well as some additional monies for broadband connections for communities that uh, – uh, do not have access to uh, what, what I guess many of us consider luxuries, but uh, honestly boil down to essential services, mm-hmm. the ability to uh, uh, maybe uh, look for a job, uh, to find a state agency for assistance, um, and then obviously uh, maybe even just get to the latest and greatest on where we are with uh, coronavirus preparations. Very important stuff. Very important stuff, but certainly beats having to drive miles to a, a, a town center to maybe pick up uh, Wi-Fi out in the parking lot from your library. Uh, is uh, truly a, a, a great endeavor to connect uh, all of the Commonwealth's 351 cities and towns to uh, to uh, broadband service. To broadband service, but I'm looking to specifically say to reliable broadband service. Very nice. Yeah, and yeah. that is focused in Western Mass, where you hail from, sir. Well, that is true. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be from a part of Western Mass that, that has it. these services, yeah, just outside of uh, the greater Springfield area. But uh, there are a number of uh, towns sort of in between the Berkshires and and uh, and the, the three other Franklin, Hampshire, and uh, Hamden counties uh, uh, that uh, really need this access, need this connection. So that's great to see that that investment continues. But what I really do want to talk about is the housing piece of, of this bill. Um, and, and I think because it's the, as it's the governor's second term, I think we're starting to see a real focus on a couple of matters that truly set the Commonwealth up, at least in my opinion, and, and certainly I think it's the goal of the governor, uh, for, for not today and not for tomorrow, but really for decades in the future. Uh, and that's boosting uh, the, the housing stock and the housing starts and the affordability of housing mm-hmm. for the workforce here in Massachusetts, uh, closing, you know, workforce training, closing skill gaps, uh, to enable the, the, those that are educated here in Mass to stay in Massachusetts to find employment. Um, and that includes manufacturing jobs, which I think is really interesting in 2020 because not something we all think about as a need for, 
but there's still a huge industry here in Massachusetts that require people to do the jobs. That is a great point, Cayenne. Especially, I think, today's manufacturing is not our grandfather's manufacturing. There's so many unique and amazing items uh, either being made or, or, or companies that are in manufacturing doing things better uh, than we have in the past. We have many clients that are in this space. Mm-hmm. And, and really, uh, the bottom line is if you can get regulators and elected officials, um, uh, lawmakers, really inside the doors of these facilities and they see what is you know, coming out mm-hmm. of, of uh, uh, f- from the, the shipping department, uh, in, in the, the end product is really, really amazing and impressive. We've seen and it firsthand, quite have, honestly. Honestly. And uh, so to continue to promote that is uh, all the better because I think that these are areas where uh, the true backbone of kind of the New England economy uh, can continue to, uh, to exist uh, and, and we can build off of that. So some of the highlights of the bill, which you mentioned, was $50 million for high-density mixed-income affordable housing near transit, so transit-oriented development, or TODs, very mm-hmm. uh, trendy in the vernacular lately. Um, but I thought an interesting thing to your idea of sort of looking forward past this year or next year is $40 million to support the redevelopment of underutilized or abandoned buildings. Well, I mean, we have tried to have a focus on the gateway cities across the Commonwealth for some time, but... Let's face it, again, that New England economy and the, the amount of uh, history in and around, there are a number of whether they're mill buildings or just older industrial buildings that, um, uh, A, are incredible architecture, uh, but, but still stand and exist and are completely underutilized all across the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fantastic if we can start uh, uh, directing those funds to developers who are willing to kind of take on those projects and maybe not build something shiny and new but to uh, take what could be a very unique and creative uh, space uh, and, and turn it into a, a, a spot where folks would love to live. Yep. And uh, some other highlights include $45 million to support, quote-unquote, key clusters with a focus on technologies, AI, robotics, um, $25 million to help re- rehabilitate blighted or vacant housing, mm. $5 mm-hmm. million for broadband access, $5 million for matching grants to help low- and moderate-income entrepreneurs start or grow their businesses. That's, that's fantastic. It's great. I mean, I'd like to see the first part you mentioned about the, the uh, technology clusters. I'd like mm-hmm. to see some of those clusters start to sprinkle out other from where uh, we traditionally currently find them in the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. But uh, absolutely right, and especially the blighted houses. I think there's a number of mayors in cities and towns that are trying to tackle them uh, one by one and maybe piecemeal, but to have these additional funds available so that they can really begin to kind of transform uh, downtowns and, and bring people back uh, to Main Street, um, uh, I think is a, a fantastic initiative. So I think in conclusion, right, it's a, it's a great bill. I think uh, State House News pointed out it might be one of the smaller economic development bills that we've seen at least in recent years. But I, I think the targeted approach in the very specific doesn't doesn't drown out any one initiative. I think they're all things that sort of complement each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, moving forward is a, a, a great start to uh, for the future of the Commonwealth. March is International Women's Month, and March 8th, more specifically, is International Women's Day. To honor the month, each week on OA On Air, we will be highlighting one of the amazing women that work here at O'Neill & Associates. We are proud to say that approximately 50% of our company is comprised of women. For our first edition of Women of OA, we are joined by Anne Murphy, Senior Vice President here at O'Neill & Associates. Hello, Anne. 
Hello, Cayenne. Thanks for coming in and being our inaugural guest. Wow, that's exciting. This, this spotlight feature for the month of March. So we're going to just talk a little bit about you, your work, life, advice, you know, whatever, wherever the wind takes us. Yeah, my favorite subject, me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, so we're going to go way back. What was your first job ever? Okay, I am time traveling right now. Uh, I was 16 years old, and I had a part-time job for Christmas at Gilchrist Department Store, which was at the Westgate Mall in Brockton. And my grandmother had also worked there, and she actually got me the job. That was my first job. And what did you do there? Basically, I folded sweaters that customers uh, kind life. of like ripped apart every day, and I had to refold them. But I did also get to use the cash register at the time that was an actual push button kind of cash register to take uh, I to love take cash sales. Registers. Yeah, it was great. That was the best part of retail jobs for it me. It was great. Yeah. So, what did it teach you when you look back? Well, it was really good. I couldn't wait to get my first job that I had a real paycheck with a check that I could put into a bank account and you had to like stick your time card in and that noise to ching and <laughs> It was like, okay, it taught me you have to be on time. Mm -hmm. You have to be ready to work with the appropriate demeanor, uh, outfit on. If you work in retail, you had to look good. You have to have a good attitude. And you had to just be ready to do whatever they asked you of that day. Sometimes you wouldn't know, and there would be different things that you had to do. Kind of roll with it. You roll with it. Particularly when you're young, first starting out lowest man on the totem pole so to speak you just kind of take what they give you and and do it well and you're terrified in some ways because there's a lot of people around you who are a lot older than you so you kind of find the people who can be your allies and your friends if you have to ask what you think maybe is a dumb question and you don't want to get fired by a manager so you have to find those people who say okay okay kid come over here i'll show you the ropes yeah so what do you do here at o'neill and associates as a Senior vice as president. As a senior vice president. Well, I manage client accounts and, um, in the public relations in practice. In the public relations practice. That's my main, my main focus. Also, develop new business to uh, acquire new, new clients as well. And that's, uh, that's also an interesting aspect of the job, and it's one that I like. I like both the servicing part of it and the um, try and obtaining new clients part, too. And there are some that would say here that you have some of our more fun clients sometimes. Yes. You have fun events and things. Right. Can you talk a little bit about some of those? Well, we have, uh, we're right in the middle of it right now. We're gearing up for the 50th anniversary of Boston Pride, the largest LGBT organization here in New England. And we, it's a wonderful organization. We've been working with them for quite some time. So that's fun because the week comes here in June, and it's all systems go, and it's really uh, an amazing outpouring of support from the community. We also have, that's coming up a little later in the summer, is the Fan Expo Boston, which used to be called Boston Comic Con, mm -hmm. where three days at the BCEC, we see people dressed in all interesting costumes, the celebrity guests, and all kinds of comic creators, and that's fun. And then I also have uh, Faneuil Hall Marketplace, uh, which is everybody pretty much knows around here where Faneuil Hall Marketplace is. And we, throughout the year, we do all kinds of uh, marketing, PR, and promotion for their events. Including the tree lighting. Including the tree lighting called Blink. And yes. I know Cayenne has been a volunteer. Thank you very much for that. Such a fun night. It's always fun. It is. Right. And, and you let me bring my son, so that's Absolutely. just an added bonus. And he now will forever be grateful for the fact that you introduced him to the real 
Santa. The real Santa's there. So, uh, so what is, and I know that this is a hard question, but what does a typical day look like for you? Well, no two days are the same. No, here. obviously. I mean, I'm glad we have our calendars now, computerized. It really runs my life. So I uh, want to make sure I'm all ready for every day, which could be a combination of client meetings in person, client calls, uh, time set aside to develop uh, materials that I need to deliver to clients, whether it be press releases, content uh, for social media, pitching stories to the news media, getting things ready like that, uh, training my clients, having them to do some media training with me, and just making sure you're always on top of things for the client and moving their, moving them forward for their what they want out of, out of us, which is a great work product, and I know that we all deliver it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I always really like about here is that no, no two days are the same for a number of reasons, but also because of just the subject matter that you could be working on. So one day you could be planning for Boston Pride, and then another day you could be doing something um, totally different. And the variance, I feel like it keeps us fresh, too. Well, that's one of the things that I toes. do like about my job. I think as a well, that former, that was the next question. Was, what do you I like best about your right work? into that. Look at you. <laughs> it's like you've done this before. Uh, a little bit. Uh, as a former journalist, as I started my career as a journalist, I think I um, veered to that to journalism because I really love variety. I like doing different things. I like different. I want to be jack of all trades and a master of none. Believe me, that is is how I am. And and I think with consulting work you can every day can be different there are different issues you delve into and it really is the variety of the work that keeps it interesting and i think that you were right on that it's the variety so final question in closing what advice would you give to women in the workplace old young millennial whatever whatever any (laughs) any woman in the workplace i think it's find a mentor at your workplace and you know, it doesn't have to be a woman. It could be a man who supports your goals and supports what you're doing and wants to see you succeed. I think that mentor can be very helpful and instrumental in your own career path, in your growth, someone you can rely on to help you and support you, someone you can vent to, uh, vent to and just kind of be really uh, out front and relaxed with, and I said, and, and who has your best interest at heart. But I also think, and if that person is not at your workplace, maybe they are at another workplace and that person can still still guide you. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's very important to be that mentor uh, to others, to other junior associates and junior colleagues, and offer yourself as a resource to them. Because I always think of the law of reciprocity, that what you, what you give, you get back. You might not know it today or tomorrow, but you will get it back in the end. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Anne. You're welcome. Happy Women's Month. Same to you. And finally this week, we would be remiss to not mention the passing of an American business icon, Jack Welch. Not only was he the great leader of GE, but he was an overall cheerleader for the American economy. And I uh, certainly always admired that about, about him and, and his remarks. And uh, he certainly spent a lot of time on the speaker circuit uh, after his time uh, at GE as well. And so, so many folks got to learn or hear uh, snippets uh, uh, from him direct that they could apply in into their daily, uh, you know, business acumen. Well, he was dubbed the greatest manager of the century. 
That is true. That it's, is true. It's quite an accolade. It's a better accolade than Neutron Jack, I believe. But. I, I think he would probably have agreed with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and you know, and I think it's a known. I don't want to say it's a little known fact, but certainly a very interesting fact is, you know, in 1985, while he was at GE. Uh, he uh, he ushered through and saw the purchase of RCA, which at the time owned NBC, and this marked the largest acquisition outside of the oil industry that American uh, the American business world had seen, uh, and certainly impressive. And uh, Mr. Welch's life story is full of inspiration and relatable aspects that we can all learn from. Um, but I think more importantly, as we did our research, kind of to have this conversation today, we mm -hmm. found some things that might be a little lesser known um, yeah. and, and of great interest. Uh, so, Cayenne, I know you uh, a couple of things jumped up, jumped off the page at you. It did. First of all, born Peabody, Massachusetts. Boom. Always, always love love having a Massachusetts guy. Um, and I think raised in Salem, he graduated from UMass Amherst. Uh, for his undergrad, which uh, that's my alma mater, so that's always nice to hear. He, um, he was the son of a railroad conductor, and uh, his mom was a housemaker. Neither of them graduated high school, um, which really just goes to show you that, God, really, anyone can do anything uh, if you honestly put your mind to it and, and work hard, which is what a, great, what a great story. And we hear those a lot, but I think it's easy to forget when you see somebody who was as enormously successful and wealthy um, that came from very little, uh, just working class um, and still kind of figured out the pieces that if yeah. you work hard and you do the right thing and you make smart moves, you too can apparently become manager of the century. Hey, it certainly epitomizes one of the you know, <laughs> modern day buzzwords of grit. Yeah. Right? He, he had grit. Entrepreneurship. He stuck entrepreneurship, sought through. Um, really impressive, although I think from some of our other research, it really showed his mother was uh, mm -hmm. quite an inspiration. Yeah, so um, I like his mom a lot. <laughs> I, feel, I feel she's my, she's my spirit animal. Uh, a really nice story in the, uh, in the Times cover coverage was that he was his dad was away for work a lot, again, a railroad conductor, so he was essentially raised by his mother, uh, called her the most influential person in his life. Uh, as a mom myself, love to hear that. He, there, one story that he had shared was after a hockey game, he threw his stick across the ice, losing the game. Uh, she stormed into the locker room and yelled, you punk, if you don't know how to lose, you'll never know how to win. Uh, conversely, was also his biggest cheerleader. He had a stutter when he was younger, and she had told him, it's because you're so smart, no one's tongue could keep up with a brain like yours. Mm -hmm. And. Mm -hmm. What a great message to be, you know, his biggest critic is how it's explained. She's sure. his harshest critic, but his biggest champion. Um, as the mother of a six-year-old boy, I like to think that I, I walk a similar line. Um, and, hey, yeah, all for the moms out there. I agree. So I think <laughs> as you peel back that Jack Welch onion, and mm -hmm. given that it's International Women's Month, I mean, yeah. honestly, talk about a great woman behind the man. And it was his very own mother. Um, and so our... Uh, fondest memories of Jack Welch. We certainly wish him Godspeed. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, thank you for, uh, for the inspiration. Absolutely. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded as always in Studio 1OA, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Cosmo, for allowing me to sit in your chair. Thank you for doing it. 
Goodbye till next time. I'm Jamie Dunbar. Up next, Hugh Drummond speaks with Dr. Gregory Siatone of Anna Maria College. Anna Maria College offers a first-of-its-kind graduate program, providing health professionals with the leadership, organization, and communication skills to take on elevated roles during health emergencies and disaster events. Dr. Siatone is a nationally recognized leader in the health emergency management field. He's the author of the leading textbook in the field, Siatone's Disaster Medicine, and he holds an appointment as Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Harvard Medical School. We're pleased to be joined by Dr. Greg Siatone, Medical Director of Anna Maria College's Health Emergency Management Program, and he is here to uh, talk to us about coronavirus. But first, uh, Dr. Siatone, tell us more about yourself. Yes, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I, um, I'm an emergency physician by training. Uh, I am the uh, director of the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Fellowship in Disaster Medicine, uh, as well as an associate professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. Um, I also am the uh, current president of the World Association for Disaster and Emergency Medicine, which spans has members in uh, over 55 countries around the world and is the oldest organization of its kind. Um, and it's in that capacity that I provide um, medical directorship of the, um, the program in uh, health emergency management at Anna Maria. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Um, Dr. Siatone, so tell us, is the panic over a coronavirus warranted? Um, how readily does this uh, virus spread? And, and how deadly is it? Well, uh, you know, first of all, panic is never warranted. Um, and and I, I think that, you know, we are seeing some, some of that on the global uh, stage right now. Um, the, uh, the coronavirus um, is not completely understood. But it does um, seem that it's it, it's spread, um, mean, meaning transmissibility, uh, seems to be in a fashion that's similar to influenza. So it's a respiratory type of a of a spread, um, and and the practices that we use uh, every day, I'm sorry, every year, um, you know, for the influenza outbreak, uh, is really what we should be doing now, and that amounts to good personal hygiene, like um, hand washing, um, using uh, using the hand sanitizer solutions. Don't touch your face too often, um, sneezing and coughing, you know, into your elbow as opposed to out into the air. Um, you know, so these, these, these things that we do, um, you know, pretty much every year, really should be doing all the time to keep infectious diseases um, uh, limited, um, is, uh, is really what we should be doing now for the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, how deadly is it? So the data right now uh, seems to point to coronavirus having about a 2% mortality, though I suspect that is going to uh, lower become lower um, as we move forward because I think um, for a couple of reasons I think the denominator of that meaning how many people are actually infected right now is underreported uh, so I think that's going to bring it down a bit um, I think also that um, because we are starting to see um, some of the uh, better care of patients and and some some revised data rather than just the very early data coming out of Wuhan China um, that we're going to start seeing that actually that that percentage is is a good deal lower than what it is. But right now the percentage is at two percent. Um, I, I I think I'm not. I, I believe we're seeing some recent data now out of China that is pointing to more closer to a 0.7 percent um, uh, death rate. Though I don't I don't have that verified yet. But I, I do think that I do predict that as we go forward, um, that mortality rate is going to come down. Now, if you compare that to other outbreaks. Um, mm. Influenza every year is somewhere between a 0.1 and 0.2 percent um, uh, uh, mortality, death rate. Um, SARS was around 10 percent. 
uh, and Ebola is, of course, 50 to 70 percent. But there's a big difference between this and Ebola. And I think, I think this may be some of this may be contributing to sort of the global concern and global um, panic. Actually, this is the word that I would use that we're seeing now because we just recently, the last four or five years, came off of that Ebola outbreak, and I think there might be some concern. Um, from that, you know, now about this new outbreak that's making us um, uh, not treat it, you know, as we as we should, like essentially treat it like a an influenza outbreak as far as how we um, prevent transmissibility and um, how we manage the, the, the care. The big difference is um, Ebola, again, has a 50 to 70 percent mortality, but also 100 um, percent of Ebola patients, you know, those get, who get infected with Ebola have serious disease. And, and therefore require very um, uh, high-level medical care, meaning it's very resource-dependent. It's, it's ICU-level care, essentially, and, and beyond that. Um, whereas the COVID uh, outbreak, just like influenza, the vast majority, well over 80%, um, you know, require no care whatsoever. Um, it's self-limiting, as we say. Um, somewhere around 10 or 15% um, require medical care, and then it's a smaller percentage, maybe about 5%, um, they require a much higher level of care, like an ICU level of care. So the, the the comparison really is is vastly different with Ebola because you know as we as we saw during the Ebola outbreak, you know we do here in the U.S. a really good job of caring for two to three Ebola patients at a time. If we would have cared for a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand, you know that would have been crippling to our healthcare system just because it's so resource dependent. That's not the case with COVID. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about containment. Um, you know, there's the cruise ship in Japan. Is is containment the right operational response? Well, yes. I mean, you know, infectious disease outbreaks, uh, you, you always want to do the best you can, you know, uh, the best job at containing that you can. Um, but again, just so we don't, you know, have this contribute to panic, um, containment is one piece of it. But I think we also have to come to the understanding that it will the COVID-19 will be everywhere, much like influenza. You know, in influenza, it's approximately one billion people a year are infected by influenza, and and pretty much everywhere in the world. Um, we're going to see something similar to that with COVID. It's going to spread everywhere. It's going to be in every state. Um, so while yes, we we should be looking at containment. Um, I, I think the idea of preventing spread meaning um, preventing it from coming to the U.S., preventing it from coming to any particular state. While it's a good thing to do, we shouldn't let that um, uh, get us very concerned when we're not able to do that, because I think that it is going to spread, much like the influenza virus spreads. So rather, we should re really be focusing on management of it while it's here, um, because in my opinion, it's going to be here. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned management, and you know we're thinking about emergency management. What are, what are some things that municipal... Uh, emergency managers or, or people that have maybe that function in a private company, what should they be doing? Well, again, I think, uh, you know, a good, uh, a good process to follow is much like you would do, as I said before, during the influenza outbreak. So practicing good personal hygiene, you know, throughout the organization, company, whatever we're, we're talking about. I do not think that people should be walking around uh, wearing masks, okay? Mm -hmm. I do think if you're ill, you should self-quarantine at home, let's say, uh, or perhaps you know wear a mask as well so you don't um, uh, spread uh, the, the disease. Uh, but just you know walking walking to the grocery store, you know to wherever in a mask. I think uh, when you're asymptomatic, I think is not something that needs to be done. Um, 
other practices, um, you know, would would include identifying, um, you know, workers. In this case, you're, you're talking about from a company, let's say, identifying workers or having them self-identify um, when they're ill and having them stay at home. Um, you know, again, these these are kind of standard infectious disease practices, and I really don't think that should change at all with the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned before the the importance of having a plan, but also having a plan that that you're able to pivot from. Yeah. So, you know, and I, and this is, uh, I teach disaster medicine and this is a very basic premise that I teach to all my students. And that is, um, it's very good to plan. Uh, it's very good to make a plan. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, whether that's for a, an explosion or a terrorist attack or, uh, an infectious disease outbreak, it's good to have a plan on the shelf. That's, that's fine. Um, but as I, as I say, better the planning than the plan. Uh, because in my opinion, it's much better that you're able to go through the process and practice the process of planning for events than to actually physically have the plan because the plan will change and the disaster will change. We have a, a saying in disaster medicine that if you've been to one disaster, you've been to one disaster because they're all very different. Mm. So again, while it's good to have some sort of plan in, in, in place, it's, it's much better that you've actually gone through the process of planning. That's part of preparedness. Uh, where you learn to work with one one another. You learn how to pivot because inevitably in every disaster, you'll follow one course of action and then things will change and you'll have to pivot uh, and, and with it, you know, with the event and follow um, another, you know, angle, another related course of action. So the ability to, to pivot like that during a disaster uh, is, I think, directly dependent on, you know, how much planning you've done and how, how much of that active um, uh, participation of members of your leadership and others that have gone through that planning, um, you know, how much that they're, they're able to incorporate those skills um, and make them actually operational during a disaster. Okay, thank you. Uh, last question. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Health Emergency Management Program. Uh, who enrolls in it and uh, what, what kinds of things do they learn? So um, our disaster medicine fellowship program at, uh, at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, <coughs> excuse me, is now um, in its 14th year. <coughs> and along the way, what we uh, uh, have done is look at different master programs that we might um, collaborate with so that any of our fellows who would like to pursue a master's um, could do so. So in, in, in the early on, in the early stages, we were um, having uh, some relationships with different masters of public health programs. But we decided to determine that, you know, really uh, a master's of public health, while it's a great, great master's to get, um, is not as applicable to disaster medicine as something like a healthcare emergency management master is. And, um, and this is even somewhat different from emergency management masters, um, uh, related but a little bit different because it focuses on the healthcare arena. So uh, it's for all walks of life, um, especially those interested in healthcare, or maybe currently in healthcare. Uh, it is the, the, it's designed to um, uh, prepare someone to take on uh, a role or a responsibility either as a healthcare emergency manager, like in a hospital system, a medical center, a small hospital, large hospital, um, what have you, or to take a, a, a leadership role in a higher level organization. Um, and in you know, a governmental organization, let's say something like FEMA, um, Homeland Security has a medical director in, a, in an office. Um, the DHHS obviously has um, uh, Health and Human Services has um, uh, different uh, emergency managers. So, you know, it's emergency management for the healthcare sector essentially, uh, and that's what it's what it's geared to uh, prepare the student for. Well, um, thank you. It's a tough topic to talk about, but I appreciate the wonderful information that you've shared and and you know making time of your busy day to uh, be on our podcast. Sure.
Sure, it's my pleasure. Dr. Siatone, thank you very much. Up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Kaya. Hi, Tom. 83. 83 episodes. Episode Pretty good. 83. Big week for us because it's episode 83, but also because Super Tuesday. And Big Super, Super Tuesday, Tuesday was super for Joe Biden, wasn't it, huh? It was, and very different than I think we expected when we were having this conversation less than a week ago. I've been around politics for a long time. All your life. In my yeah, And I've never, ever seen... A turnaround in 72 hours, like the turnaround that Joe Biden had from the South Carolina primary with a major endorsement, mm-hmm. Jim Clyburn. You know, I heard somebody on on some show last evening say that Clyburn saved the Democratic Party. Clyburn saved the Democratic Party. He made a moderate, a leader, a, a winner in 10 of the 14 primary states yesterday on Tuesday, and I must say, Biden has really got what we call mo. He's got he's got a lot of momentum, and yeah. he is just cooking. It's truly remarkable. <clears throat> I mean, the conversations that we were having as a as a country, as a party, even within this office on Friday, going into the weekend, so different than the ones we were having Monday, and then now today. Well, the Clyburn the Clyburn endorsement, I, I think, loomed to be very large, not only for African Americans living in South Carolina, but across this country, and I think it was a combination of suburban white women and blacks, men and women of African background, who came out in droves and voted for Joe Biden. Number one, because the number one issue is what do we do to get rid of Donald Trump as president of the United States? Second issue has to do with uh, has to do with the economy, and the third issue is climate change. Uh, and what we've seen during the course of this campaign is one week Bloomberg would be on top, the next week Elizabeth Warren would be on top, the ne- following week you'd have Pete Buttigieg on top, and and or Amy Klobuchar, and they all had their they all had their moment in the sun. Mm-hmm. And after South Carolina, there was no pathway for Mayor Pete. There was no pathway for Senator Klobuchar, and so they had a they had a seed in what they did because they're moderates ceded to the moderate and Joe Biden. Yeah. And it gave him just a platform, a terrific lift, you know, for the for the for the for the series of of primaries that were coming up yesterday, this past Tuesday. Interestingly, um, He also had uh, Beto O'Rourke come out. Not to, and, and Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. Um, who helped him dramatic, dramatically in Texas. Mm-hmm. Amy Klobuchar helped him dramatically in Minnesota. Um, and and Bloomberg today and coming out and throwing his support now behind Biden. You really have a two-man race, Elizabeth Warren notwithstanding. Um, she's rethinking her can- candidacy as well yeah. as we speak. So it looks like a two-person race between Bernie Sanders and, and Joe Biden. And uh, I really do believe that Biden is, you know, he's, he's just the calm after the storm of having an extreme right of center president sitting in the White House, creating chaos, divisiveness, and, um, and and really showing no direction. Um, that Joe Biden is seen as a moderate who can come in, kind of calm the emotions of the American people, unite the American people, create a direction for the American people, 
and uh, I, I think it goes to that point. It reminds me a little bit of Jerry Ford coming in after Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Ford had been appointed by the Congress to succeed an impeached president in Richard Nixon, but there was such chaos during the Nixon administration that Ford was able, as a calming influence, to come in and, and unite people, calm the waters, and create a direction for the future. Very much like that today. We still have a ways to go. We do. Until the convention. We do, but there are moderate states that Mm -hmm. are coming up. In in next week's primaries, I think there are six or seven. You have Missouri, Mississippi, um, uh, Minnesota, North Dakota, Idaho. Uh, Those states are pretty moderate states, and I'd be amazed if so you if think we Joe will Biden, continue to see? Yeah, I, I'd be amazed if Joe Biden wasn't able to kind of seize on the opportunity of his momentum and keep it going. I will tell you there's more money coming through for him than he has seen, you know, at, at all Probably in the course the of his campaign. campaign. Cause he, he, he won 10 primaries this week without spending so much as a dollar. Mm-hmm. I, and many just, of them, yeah. It was just endorsements that came along and, and people who saw no, no pathway for themselves coming back and, and getting behind his campaign. And that carried the day. Yeah, um, I think his campaign I think spent all day Monday just vetting endorsements yes. that were coming in. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. I it mean, was it's a great problem to have. <laughs> great problem to have, and it was free press mm-hmm. because every time a U.S. senator or a governor or a former office holder stood up and said, "I'm with Joe," you know, it got him free press, mm-hmm. and it, it just really carried the day. And in really different districts and areas throughout the country, very, too. Very. The other point is that Bernie Sanders hasn't really received much more than 25 or 30 percent of the vote anywhere. And he keeps talking to political pundits and and members of the press about how he's bringing greater numbers to vote for him into the Democratic fold. In fact, he has not done that. Um, We had great numbers yesterday, but those numbers came out in very large form, as again from suburban whites and, and, and urban blacks, and they voted for Biden in great numbers in droves. And I think an important point of that is that he's not he's not growing those numbers over 2016. He's he's staying really right where he was. So he hasn't in four years been able to gain any new supporters. That's correct. And that wasn't enough to do it four right. years ago. So right. we'll see. I don't know. But Every the, week we're having very different conversations. The other walk away from yesterday is that the person who really helped Biden was Mike Bloomberg with all the advertisements which were anti-Trump. So it wasn't Biden or his campaign talking negatively about the president. Mm-hmm. It was it was Michael Bloomberg, who really took President Trump to task. Yeah, every step of, and, and spent tons of advertising dollars doing it. And he says that he's going to keep yeah, no reason all the infrastructure that he put in place stop. in place for Joe Biden. It's, it's, it's a pretty good contribution. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Diane. Thanks, Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Don't forget to subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website, 